Welcome back to episode eight. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Lauren. And this is A Place in the Courtroom. We are so happy to have you here for yet another episode. We are still in Women's History Month, and Lindsay's got a pretty interesting case for us today that I know nothing about. Yeah, so you remember how last week when you went rogue? Yeah. Yeah, I went real rogue. <laughs> it's fun though, right? It is. Um, yeah, I went, I went totally rogue. Uh, but yes, it does tie into Women's History Month, and so we will get into that in a minute, but I think we did want to tell you uh, before we get going, we've had a couple of our listeners tell us that sometimes our volume is a little bit low, or one of us is very quiet compared to the other. We've heard it from a couple different people, so we are playing around with our audio, um, so let us know what you think. If we are too echoey or we, we've changed some settings because um, we're thinking maybe that that is the culprit. But if if it works, let us know. If we sound like crap, let us know, please. And we can go back to what we were doing. Um, but we do want to hear from you to make sure that you guys are able to hear us on our episodes. Yeah, and thank you to everyone who's given us feedback so far. That has been very helpful because we, of course as we talked about last week, I think it was, that we listened to the episode when we edit it, and then we usually do a quick listen through once it's posted, but sometimes we don't catch the same audio issues that you guys do. So if you are having audio issues and you've narrowed it down, like I know some people have the issue when they are in the car, but not when they're listening in headphones. So just let us know what your situation is and we're going to try to fix it. Yes. So the more details, the better. Um, if you can tell us either an app or you know, how you're listening, please let us know if you're listening on the website and having issues, let us know and we will start working on it. And also in the realm of procedural matters, we are still taking questions. If you have any questions that you want to have us answer or discuss on the podcast about law school, tips and tricks for applying to law school, or if you yourself have advice that you would like to share with our listeners, then please do send us a message on Instagram or get a hold of us on any other social media and we will be happy to include that. Yeah, and I think we are going to air that episode on April 17th, so you still have a little bit of time to get in those questions. We're going to be recording early um, since April gets a little bit crazy. Just a bit. Just just law school finals. Just, just a little couple things going on, um, mm -hmm. and so we figured we will cushion that time so that Lauren can focus on school, um, but we're still bringing you episodes. So you don't have to cry and miss us. We know you and we know that will happen. I know. I know it would. It's, it's so long to wait a week. I mean, people are going to have to go back to once a week here. And I That's know really it, it's, it's going to be weird. So you do still have this week and next week where you get us for twice a week. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, then you have to go back to once a week. Sorry, guys. And tell something other, but we have really, really, really awesome. We do. Awesome cases planned for next month. So I'm very excited. The next two months, we have a lot of stuff planned. We do. We do have a lot planned. 
and it will be fun and exciting. And I think we've been gaining new listeners. So please keep sharing us. Um, We've gained a lot of new social media listeners. So if it's your first episode, for some reason, if you were deciding just to start on episode eight, welcome. Um, You know, hopefully you go back and re-listen to start from the beginning and re-listen. But we're excited. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. We are. Okay. Should we get started? I think we should. Okay. So we'll give you a little context of how I got here. I love how the context, <laughs> I love the rabbit hole that leads to what we Right. Think. Okay. So last week when we were going over your episode and we were, you were talking about how a lot of women aren't necessarily um, involved in white collar crime or there's this whole kind of little niche area of pink collar crime and how the crimes differ compared to if men are committing white collar crime. It started making me think back to my college days where we studied war crimes. Oh. And how you never really hear about female war criminals. Wow, this is not where I thought this episode was going to go. <laughs> where do you think we were going? I, th- I thought we were going to organized crime. Oh, no, that would have been a good one. Actually, one of the women I was going to cover originally was organized crime. For Women's History oh. Month, and it's from California, so we'll it throw her. Future one. Yeah, we'll throw her in the mix. But no, we we are going to Europe. Ooh, yeah. So this we're we're going real far. Man. So war crimes. We're gonna go through a little bit of the history uh, because it kind of is a very specialized area of law. It's a very odd area of law because. You know, normally, like in California, we have in any state, we have our state government, really even sometimes city and county have its own criminal rules. Um, And then, I mean, usually it's more like municipal rules, but the state has criminal rules and then your federal government has criminal rules. Um, Here, it's a little odd because there's nothing really, or at least back in the day, there wasn't anything higher. Right. So there's nobody that really governs what people in each individualized country does. So war crimes are defined as the violent, well, roughly defined as violations of international humanitarian law, either treaty or customary law that incur individual criminal responsibility under international law. As a result, and in contrast to the crimes of genocide and crimes against humanity, War crimes must always take place in the context of an armed conflict, whether it's international or within the country itself. So prior to World War II, there were very basic rules, but there weren't a ton of, there were no real laws, I guess, on it. The Hague Conference tried in 1899 and then again in 1907 to try to regulate warfare somehow. But a lot of the states pushed back because they wanted to maintain their sovereignty. And in 1907, they were finally able to have basic rules of warfare and the prohibition on the mistreatment of prisoners. After World War II, um, in 1945, the United Nations was established, or the UN. And in 1946, uh, the Nuremberg trials took place which is where a lot of the Nazi 
members were prosecuted for their war crimes. And at the time that the Nuremberg trials occurred, there were different countries that were involved. And then there were also Tokyo tribunals, which I didn't realize had happened. I knew about the Nuremberg trials, but I had never really heard about the Tokyo tribunals after World War II. Yeah, neither did I. Yeah. So one judge noted during the Nuremberg trials that the Hague Convention nowhere designates such practices, and he was meaning methods of waging war, as criminal, nor is any sentence prescribed, nor is any mention made of a court to try and punish offenders. So they essentially had to pretty much create everything as they were trying to figure out how to prosecute these people. Which kind of just gets my legal mind going of like, mm-hmm. you have no jurisdiction. You have, you're essentially trying for people for what? Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of this this really complex intersection of there's so many different actors coming together here that are right. governed by their own complex systems. And so the level of working together that you need to really make a cohesive system is probably not something that you would think to do until something bad happens and you need to come up with something on the fly. Exactly. So mainly the four types of crimes that were prosecuted during the Nuremberg trials were crimes against peace, which was the planning, preparing, and waging of aggressive war, war crimes under the Hague Convention from 1899 or 1907, Crimes against humanity, which they were meaning genocide, uh, which would by magnitude shock the conscience of humankind. And then the fourth one was conspiracy to commit any of those three types. So those were the four crimes that they were prosecuting for. In 1946, the UN, there was a committee that also began drafting codes of crimes against peace and security of mankind and statutes for the International Criminal Court, or the ICC. In 1950, the UN International Law Committee used the principles from Nuremberg uh, that no war criminal was above the law. That was kind of their basis for what, when they were developing this. And essentially, the ICC precedent was, in fact, the Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals, because they never really had had to deal with this before. And they also used certain conventions that, you know, different countries had agreed upon, like the European Convention of Human Rights, the Genocide Convention, and the Geneva Convention. In 1996, the International Law Commission drafted the Code of Crimes for the ICC. So it took a long time to get this fully situated. And it finally entered into force in 2002. That wasn't and that long ago. No. The independent ICC is works with the UN and it is for now it is for the most serious crimes. So going back, um, we're we're gonna take it back to World War II and we're gonna sp- focus specifically on Nazi women war criminals. So majority we kind of had women from different like some were guards some were doctors that we'll see some were secretaries there are different types of of war criminals but for the female guards that they had at the the concentration camps 
Majority of the women were from lower to middle class. They had no relevant work experience as being a guard in any sort of institution or, you know, a prison of any sort. And really their only requirement for the job was that they had to be willing to carry out orders. That was it. Um, majority of the women who went into the concentrate into the positions were uh, from the League of German Girls, which essentially was an organization that indoctrinated the girls to join the SS. And the male guards were actually told that the female guards should be treated as equal. So a female guard could never completely outrank a man. Um, but as you'll see, some of the women became heads of the concentration camp where it was a female camp and they only would report to like one person higher than them at the camp. Um, so the first one that we're going to cover, we're covering multiple because it is kind of, it's not as much of, I guess, a case as much as just a little bit of their examples and then kind of like a summary at the end. So we're kind of, we're going real rogue. I'm excited. <laughs> I told you. All right. So the first one is Irma Ida Ilze, um, Greece, and she was named the hyena of Auschwitz. And so she was mostly at Auschwitz or Ravensbrück, which was a women's concentration camp. She was born on October 7th, 1923 in Brecken, Germany, and she was one of five children. At 13, her mother committed suicide after discovering uh, her husband was cheating on her with a local pub owner's daughter, and Irma really didn't have a good childhood. That, that was one of the things that happened. She was known for being bullied. She lacked the courage to stand up for herself, and she ended up dropping out of school as a teen because of the circumstances at school. Because they were so bad, she just decided to quit. She worked on the farm, um, the family farm, and then eventually started working in a shop. And like many other Germans, she was completely bewitched by Hitler. She had idolized him, and at 19, she joined um, as a guard of Ravensbrück concentration camp for women prisoners. So she was only 19 when she started going in. Wow. And that's, I think that's one of the things that stood out to me in this is all of these women are so young. Like yeah. 19. Yeah, that is really young. And I, I, I mean, you'll see. It's just the, the callousness that they had at such a young age is mm -hmm. just surprising. Yeah, and I mean, I think there was a certain level of callousness just around this situation. Oh, it is. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I'm interested to hear more about how this plays out, but it doesn't I'd play out well. That, oh, that, that's, that was my prediction. Um, I mean, we're already dealing with concentration camps. It's not yeah. going to go great, but this goes horribly wrong. Yeah. So in 1943, uh, Irma is transferred to Auschwitz. And she ends up becoming the second highest ranking SS female overseer at the Auschwitz um, Birkenau. And I'm sorry, I don't speak German. I tried to look up as much as I could, but if I pronounce something wrong, I am sorry. But she switches over to Auschwitz um, 
1943 at the age of 20. And she also was known as being the warden of the woman's section of Bergen-Belsen, which was another concentration camp. She was known for being completely vicious. She would sick dogs on prisoners. She would whip them. She would kick them with hobnailed jackboots, which I looked them up, and they're essentially the boots that have um, like nails coming out of them so that you have traction. It's those, but in like essentially like military boots. Okay. Yeah. So she has spikes coming out of her boots and she's kicking these prisoners until there's blood. Oh gosh. She was also notorious for using sexual violence against the inmates. She would strike women on their breasts Um, She would have young Jewish girls be her lookout as she raped other inmates. She also frequently had, was known for having a sexual relationship with other SS guards, including Joseph Mengal, who's known as the angel of death. So she was, they pretty much think that, that she was like a nymphomaniac with of how much sex she was having with like the prisoners and the guards. Mm Mm-hmm. She was reported to have lampshades with skin from three dead prisoners. Um, what? And Wait, back up. Yeah. What? Yeah, it comes up a couple times. I just watched Silence of the Lambs for the first time, so... Oh. That's... That was fresh. That was a little too fresh. It is. Um, yeah, so she, she had lampshades made out of prisoners all right i i don't know yeah she also was known for frequently choosing women to go into the gas chamber and a lot of the times they believed that the way that she chose women to go in is whoever she thought was prettier than her would be the one to go in and she's like she's she was pretty. She's young. She's blonde. Like, we'll post pictures on the Instagram. Um, and I think I saw a couple other pictures, and it just has – there's one picture that it's just, like, eight women all smiling in, like, skirts, and they're sitting there on a break, and it's like, oh, here's the guards on their break. And, like, you would have no idea if you took that out of – con. like, it didn't say mm-hmm. what it was. You wouldn't know that they're guards at a concentration camp. Oh, of course not. Because it's not what we picture. No, and it's definitely not like the pictures that were shown. I mean, granted, I'm I'm sure right. because that was the minority, but still, you know, that's that's not at all what you think of when you think about when you think about this. Right. And I think if you watch either like the the recreations of World War II or you're watching documentaries about it, you always see male guards. Yeah. You don't see female guards. No. And uh, like, I'm, I'm shocked to know that they even had female guards. Same. Because really, I, I mean, if you look at the portrayal of women in those like World War II era movies, it's kind of, you know, they stay home and take care of right. the kids. So that's surprising. Or you get in like, um, what is it? Indiana Jones, the like nazi woman who's like blonde and pretty and but like super stone cold do you know what i'm talking about 
I have not no. seen Indiana Jones. Okay. I know, All right. It's horrible. Have you seen any of them? No. I believe I have. Okay. All right. I believe I have, but not but, enough to remember anything. Okay. But there's like that perception of you have that like bitchy vixen kind of. Do you know what I mean? Of like that blonde yeah. and she's super pretty and mm-hmm. cold hearted like Nazi, but you don't see them like boots on the ground guard. Yeah, I would be shocked to see that portrayed in any kind of movie. Right. The other thing that she was known for doing was flaunting her personal grooming. So she would really like expensive clothes. She would overuse perfume. And it's thought that this was done in a sadistic way uh, because the females in the concentration camp had nothing. That it was like a way of rubbing it in their face. So in 1945, she was arrested by the British along with 45 other Nazis and she pled not guilty for her crimes. And she ended up being convicted of war crimes, including murder and the ill treatment of prisoners. And in the Belson, and this was in the Belson trial. So they had like the Nuremberg trials. There were a couple different versions but there were also other trials going on. So hers was the Belson trial. And it was usually multiple Nazis were all tried together. Um, they were kind of grouped together. So it wasn't all done at once. Cool. And on December 13th, 1945, she was um, hanged at 22 years of age. Wow. So she was the youngest under British law to die in the 20th century. Wow. And yeah. she was a woman. I know. But 22. All of that happened before the age of 22. Wow. I mean, just the level of indoctrination, I think, that has right. to go into. Because I, I mean, this is one of those places in history where, you know, I like to think that everybody starts out good. And, right. you know, it's external factors that lead you to do the things that you do. But this is a particular area of history that's very difficult for me to think about that because mm-hmm. I mean, how is it that at age 19 you have already become so numb to humanity that by 22, right. this is what's happening to you because what you're you've done. You're just so convinced, which, okay. Yeah. So in college, you know how you get like those prompts on essays and yeah. they give you like some weird prompt. Mm-hmm. So the prompt was, um, pretty much like, who do you think is the greatest leader in history and why? Or like mm-hmm. the most effective leader in history. Mm-hmm. My choice was Hitler. I, you know, I've been in a conversation where that question was asked and I had the same response. Oh, okay, good. Of course we did. Because I'm not I, surprised. like not condoning anything, but to be able to convince people to do what they did and to think it's completely right. To completely abandon humanity yes. in that way. That is yeah. some very effective leadership skills. Mm-hmm. Not in a good way. This is not no. a saying that we should no. be like that. <laughs> no, it's absolutely but, horrible. But it's in being the used for the worst way. Yeah, it shows you just the sheer power of influence, I think. It does. That's a good, It's yeah, it's the influence. And I think one of the other people will, will kind of... A lot of these women, I think the the country, it was the condition of the country and they felt that he was the only hope 
Yeah. Which and then I don't know where it like it started out mm-hmm. political and fine, and then it took like a really bad turn. Yeah. Pretty bad. Okay. Are you ready for our next one? I think I we have like so. four or five. We've already gotten through human lampshades, so I, I can't imagine. Oh, that, that was just that for was, whatever's next. That was just a teaser of the lampshades. Oh no. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay. The next one is Maria Mandel, and she was known as the Beast. So she was born on January 10th, 1912, and she grew up in northern Austria, and her father was a shoemaker. And when Austria was annexed into Nazi Germany in 1938, she decided to relocate into Munich. And she was actually one of the first women to volunteer to work as staff in women concentration camps through the League of German Women, or German Girls, excuse me. So she began in Lichtenberg, and she worked there for a year with 50 other women, and then was eventually sent to Ravensbrück. And she officially joined the Nazi party in 1941, and she was promoted to chief guard. She was also extremely vicious. She would frequently beat prisoners over pretty much anything. Um, A lot of the times the prisoners weren't even really sure why, but like the smallest infraction, she would go straight to physical violence. She would frequently strip prisoners naked and have them tied to a wooden post. And Maria would beat the prisoners until she couldn't lift her arm anymore. And she would prefer to do it herself instead of having a lower level, um, you know, guard or someone like that do it. And so that's how she got her nickname of the beast. Uh, She would also look for women who had curled their hair, which was prohibited in the camps. They weren't allowed to curl. Prisoners weren't allowed to have curls in their hair. And if she found one curl, Sometimes she would kick the woman to the ground and beat her on her head. Or if she was feeling particularly cruel, she would shave the woman's head and then force the woman to wear a sign around their neck saying, I broke the rules and curled my hair. I don't know what happens if you have curly hair. Yeah. Don't know. That, uh, yeah. I don't know. So... Daily roll calls, um, she was known for doing daily roll calls, and there were a lot of punishments during these daily roll calls. There were frequent beatings. She would also regularly select prisoners for the gas chamber or other forms of mass murder. Um, But she was also known to be a very intelligent and sophisticated person, which stood out to those at the concentration camp. One of the things that she loved was music. She was known one time she had killed a prisoner during roll call and pretty soon other guards started hearing this beautiful music coming from somewhere in the concentration camp. And one of the guards, one of the senior guards actually had a piano at the concentration camp because they lived there. So they had like housing at the concentration camp and they found her Like pretty much they said she was like in a trance, just completely lost in the music playing after murdering this person. That's disturbing. Mm -hmm. 
So she, in 1942, she was sent to Auschwitz too. And she was the top female ranked guard with full control over Auschwitz as well as the sub camps. And she ended up creating the Women's Orchestra of Auschwitz, which would play alongside executions, selections for the gas chamber, transportations, and daily roll call. And these women would be spared from the gas chamber. So they would play in her orchestra. And Himmler, as well as Dr. Mengel, were both known to love the orchestra. And concentration camp survivors had reported that they were actually forced to march in time to the orchestra, even though they had gone out and done all of this labor and were completely exhausted, they were still supposed to march in time. Now, she was the highest woman and only reported to one male ahead of her at the camp. She was known to take pleasure in selecting women and children to go into the gas chamber. She would take prisoners as pets and essentially have them work for her personally. And then when she would get tired of them, she would just have them killed. So one example that uh, survivors said was that she had selected a child to parade around like a puppet. And she had dressed up this child in very fine clothes, and the, the kid was always with her, the child. They don't report if it was a little girl or a little boy. The kid was always with her. The child would always be holding her hand. And all of a sudden, one day, she got tired and just threw the kid in the gas chamber. Oh, my gosh. So they thought that... In total, she was responsible for 500,000 female inmate deaths. That's a significant number. Mm -hmm. So in 1945, she was captured by American forces after attempting to flee to Bavaria, and she was part of the Auschwitz trial in 1947. She was declared a war criminal for crimes against humanity, and she was executed at age 36 by hanging on January 24th, 1948. Yeah, 500,000. That is a massive amount of people. Yeah, that's like what, all of Fresno? Oh, probably. I wow. think it is. I think we're at half a million. Are you Googling? Yeah. 544,510. So, yeah, about the entire population so of Fresno. Pretty California. much. Yep. Killing the entire, all of Fresno. That is insane. Yeah, it is. What's really interesting to me is that the way that she wanted the prisoners to be part of the orchestra in that way, when, she, when they would have to march to it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting to me that because it's almost like that sort of shows that she saw that they had a certain amount of humanity. You know what I mean? I feel like some of these people, the way that you can think of the way that they were able to do what they did was that they kind of saw this population of people as like subhuman in a way. And right. that was why right. you know, this happened. And it's interesting that she involved them in the orchestra and that they were involved in the orchestra because that was something that they like took pleasure in that they enjoyed music and so mm -hmm. for them to have them be involved with that I mean that's just 
interesting to me because it kind of shows that, like they knew that these were people capable of engaging in things that were you know and good. and obviously a, a skill that they're trained in exactly you know like i i can't play anything yeah but like these are people who you know either played or they were they were trained or had tutors or something yeah i guess it's just that that to me feels like a moment of recognizing their humanity and how can you recognize their humanity and then proceed to do what you did to them you right know? that's really sad it is okay so our next one it's not getting better our next one is called the sadist at stutthof it's not a good start no it's not no, so this is Herta Both, and she was born on January 8th, 1921 in Tetero, and she helped her father in his wood shop, um, you know, when she was old enough, and then had worked in a factory and ultimately had worked as a nurse before uh, joining the member, uh, she was a member of the League of German Gil- Girls in 1939. She was also 6'3". So she was, she stood out yeah. because of her height. Yeah. And so she had joined the League of German Girls and ended up becoming a guard uh, at Ravensbrück in September of 1942. And she took a four-week training course on, on her duties and was eventually sent to be an overseer at Stutthof. And so she ultimately was at three different concentration camps. We have Ravensbrück, Stutthof, and Bergen-Belsen. She was also known for mercilessly beating of female prisoners. Um, She would shoot at women carrying food containers from the kitchen with her pistol, pretty much just for entertainment, because she knew the women were really tired. They had worked all day. They were exhausted. Many times they were sick and very weak. And she would just shoot at them as they're trying to carry heavy containers of food. She would beat sick girls with wooden sticks. Um, And in 1945, at the age of 24, she accompanied a death march of women from central Poland to Bergen-Belsen. And on this death march, they stopped and stayed at Auschwitz temporarily. And then eventually had gone on to Bergen-Belsen. And there she was responsible for supervising a female wood, uh, I think it's brigade of 60 prisoners at Bergen-Belsen. And on April 15th, 1945, Bergen-Belsen was liberated by British forces. Um, So she was mostly known for for beatings. Um, Those were were some of the very severe examples that survivors had uh, relayed to forces once they were liberated. When the British forces got to Bergen-Belsen in 1945, they found 10,000 unburied corpses. Yeah. Wow. And they also found 40,000 sick and dying prisoners. Uh, 28,000 of them died after liberation. So only 12,000 people made it out of the camp. Wow. And the inmates, from what 
what they found, they believe the inmates had just been abandoned by Germans and essentially they just like left them to die and they were trying to flee. Um, and so that was part of the reason why it was a little bit of the reason why they were so, um, they had the unburied corpses and there were so many sick and dying and they were in such poor condition because they had been abandoned for a certain period of time. And they were, the Germans essentially, from what they could tell, they were just hoping that they would die at some point before the forces got to them to liberate it. So once the camps were liberated, they forced her to bury rotting corpses in mass graves. So they forced the Germans to bury the people. Mm -hmm. Um, And they weren't allowed to wear gloves and they had to carry them. And later on, when she was interviewed, she explained how she was completely terrified of contracting typhus from touching the dead corpses and that the bodies had been left out for so long that, okay, guys, just skip ahead if you don't like this is getting too rough. So we'll give you a second. All right. So she reported that the bodies were so rotten that the arms and legs were tearing off when they were moving the bodies. So they had just left them out. Yeah, that's uh, that'll happen. It will. And if she's then, worried about contracting something from that, she should have oh. thought about that before she committed war crimes. Oh, it gets worse. Oh, she no. complains that the bodies were too heavy, and so she had some back pain. So she's going to file a worker's comp claim or something? Right. Yeah. No. So she's like, oh, it caused me like not even long term. It was it was just really uncomfortable when I was carrying the people. Yeah, well, it was uncomfortable when they starved to death. Right. So she was arrested after after they had them, you know, help bury these people in mass graves. She was arrested and taken um, and placed in prison. And she was part of the Belson trial. And. Her claim was that she only struck prisoners with her hand as a mean of discipline, and but she never used anything else like a stick or an instrument, and she never claimed any. She never killed anybody. Mm, unlikely. Yeah, just stay unmuted. <laughs> sure you have yeah. Okay. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison. What? Yeah, 10 years. Oh, it gets better. 10 years? 10 years. That's it. She was released early on December 22nd, 1951 as an act of leniency by the British government. I'm sorry. On what grounds? Right? That, don't know. Don't know why they don't. I don't understand way, this. No, 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 no. Yeah. So, yeah, she was released by 1951. She's out on the streets, free. And then later on, she gave an interview. And in her interview, she says, quote, did I make a mistake? No. What? The mistake was that it was a concentration camp. But I had to go to it. Otherwise, I would have been put into it myself. That was my mistake. End quote. Okay. Okay, back up a little bit here. What? Yeah. So, so she would rather guards. aid in the yes. torture and killing of yes. thousands of yes. innocent people mm-hmm. than she, to 
than to potentially have the risk of you ending up in that situation. Right. So many guards after, um, after they were caught essentially and were being prosecuted, they gave this excuse of like, you know, oh, I was forced. Otherwise, I would have been a member of the concentration camp. However, there's records that actually indicate that new recruits did leave. So they have records of like new recruits coming in, signing up for the job. And then once they realize what the job entails, they they left and didn't face any consequences. Because they see the humanity. Right. Or the lack of humanity in this. Yeah. So she um, lived the rest of her life. She died on March 16th, 2000 at the age of 79 as a free woman. Wow. I just that's shocking mm -hmm. and it just really just goes to show especially that that was a similar excuse that many made I mean right and maybe this is just maybe this is just me not me having humanity but like if the risk is either something happens to you or you aid in helping it happen to a bunch of other people don't you kind of try to weigh that a little bit and think right Maybe I should go try well, to fight this or protect other people instead like, of, you know? Yeah. Like one, it's one versus 500,000 people. Yeah. That is just, I mean, you think you would at some point see through all the propaganda. Yeah. That this yeah. is not okay. But I guess that just goes to show you how deeply embedded this was this ideology was because even when you are literally faced with how horrible what it is that you have done is the fact that you're still like I didn't make a mistake yeah I mean how deep does that have to go which I was like that's kind of bold like you are out free and this is getting published and you're just gonna be like did I make a mistake no Uh, like I I don't understand I don't know like we're not talking about making a risky fashion choice to the Met no like we are talking about thousands of lives lost yes okay just nope sticking with her guns all right the next one is let me remember how to say this hold on I gotta scroll up uh Ilzy because it's not pronounced like the Spanish version. So Ilzi Kosh, I think. And I've heard her referred to either as the witch or the bitch of Buchenwald. Or oh. Buchenwald. Mm-hmm. So she was born September 22nd, 1906 to a factory foreman. And by all accounts, she had a good childhood. Her teachers had said that she was polite and happy At 15, she entered into accounting school, which was one of the only schools available for uh, young women at the time. And she ultimately became a bookkeeping clerk. And in the early 1930s, hers and her friends joined the Nazi party. Part of it because it offered solutions to the current condition of Germany after losing World War I. So that was ultimately what drove her to the party. 
And through the Nazi party, that's actually how she was introduced to her husband, Carl Otto Koch, I think, who ultimately became her husband in 1936. And in 1937, so only a year after getting married, her husband Carl became the commander of Buchenwald. And she was ultimately granted a position within the camp because of her husband's position. She was not a guard. She didn't have any formal um, position within the camp. It was just she was there because she's the wife. And one of the first things she did was she used money that was stolen from prisoners to construct a $62,500 indoor sports arena so she could ride her horses. And that's over a million dollars today. So she stole over what is now a million dollars from prisoners to build an arena to ride her horses. What is with people stealing money for horses? I know. True. I didn't even think about that. I was like, oh, actually, you know what? I did think about this yesterday when I was researching. And I was like, oh, it's tied back to last week. Like, I'm not a horse. Per- I mean, not that I have anything against horses. I just didn't like grow up with horses. So, like, I never right. had them. I don't know what it is about, like, having horses that I, I don't know. I, I don't, don't know. know. I have no idea. There's also, we need to cover the case. There's a woman in, from, I think, Clovis who said she was, like, royalty. Okay. Have you heard of this? About. I do know what you're talking okay, about. Okay. We yeah. need to cover that. Okay. So essentially, yeah, yeah we need, we need to cover that. Case. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk. We'll Cause talk. it's another crazy horse case. Yeah. All right. So sometimes Elsie would be riding, um, outside and she would essentially use her horses. She would like ride by and taunt the prisoners until they looked at her. And once they looked at her, she would whip them. Oh. Yeah. Um, survivors later testified that she always seemed very excited to send children to the gas chamber. Um, and probably one of the worst things is she was known for inspecting prisoners. So sometimes she would go through camp on horseback to scout. Um, other times she would just inspect the prisoners for unique tattoos. And if she liked your tattoo and thought you had a cool tattoo or a unique one, and she really liked it, she would have the person killed and then have their, their skin harvested to make lampshades, book covers, and or gloves. What? Yeah. So was there just somebody doing this? Like, where are these people getting these things made? The prisoners were making them. Yeah. So essentially what they would, I, from what I can piece together is they would have the prisoner killed. They would harvest the skin and then they would burn the body. Um, but there were prisoners who, you'll hear in a minute, testified against her from making lampshades. So the prisoners were doing it, which is just a whole other level. that they knew, you know, right? I'm sure. Or they they know where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. 
So she was arrested with her husband on August 24th, 1943 on charges of embezzlement and murder murders of prisoners by the Nazis. So the Nazis arrested her and her husband. That's when you know you're I know. I was like, hold on, wait, what? Like it took me a minute to piece it together. When when the CEOs of Crimes Against Humanity think that uh-huh. you have done something wrong. It's a problem. It that mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So essentially what they like what the problem was was they didn't like their methods of torture and punishments because technically they had to be cleared by the main office, but these this couple were kind of just like treating the prison as their own playground, I guess, and doing whatever they wanted. So that's where they draw the line. Yes. So her husband actually had ordered the execution of an orderly who had diagnosed and treated him for syphilis so that the guy couldn't ever tell anybody about it. And because he just like didn't want anybody to know. And from what they can piece together, they had an open marriage. And really, it was probably her that gave him syphilis. It wasn't he wasn't cheating on his wife. She was sleeping around with many people at the camp. Mm hmm. So she was acquitted in 1944 due to lack of evidence. And her collection of artifacts were actually that were made out of human skin were used against her at her trial. But the investigators couldn't prove that the artifacts were in fact human skin. Um, And she claimed that they were goat skin. I don't know why goats have tattoos. Yeah. I'm like, did you not, like, think that through, like, what, she had a goat killed and then tattooed? Yeah. And it just, it, yeah. Not to mention that of anyone else, she has all of the motivation to lie, but then you've also got this testimony from the people who actually made the lamps. Right. So she ended up being acquitted. Her husband was sentenced to death one week before the camp was actually liberated. And word spread about her um, and about the camp being liberated. And essentially due to public pressure, she ended up being brought in front of the general military government court for trial of war criminals in 1947. And the odd thing is she, she, you know, she's brought into essentially she's being charged with war crimes now and she's on the stand and on the stand She announces that she's eight months pregnant, except her husband's dead, for one. Two, well, there's a couple different things. Two, she hasn't had any contact with any men except American interrogators, who a lot of them were Jewish. And she's 41. There's a lot to unpack here. There is a lot to unpack. Was she actually pregnant or was that just yeah. something she was trying no. to say to get sympathy? No, she legit was pregnant. She ended up giving birth to a kid, but they don't know who the dad is. So she had one okay. kid with her husband before, like while they were at camp, she had a child with her husband. Um, and so she had one kid before she gets arrested. And then all of a sudden she's eight months pregnant while she's getting tried for war crimes and she never announced who the dad was. 
And the husband had been dead long enough that it couldn't have been uh-huh. his. Yeah, not his. Not the husband's. Husband's dead for a while. Okay. So they think possibly an American interrogator, unless, I don't know. But that is, from the sources that I read, they said that was the only contact that she had with any men were American interrogators, and a lot of them were Jewish. So she ended up being charged with, quote, participating in a criminal plan for aiding, abetting, and participating in the murders at Buchenwald. And she was ultimately sentenced to life in prison for violation of laws and customs of war. And both of her children ended up being placed into a foster into foster homes. So two years after her conviction, um, her sentence was reduced to four years because there were no convincing there was no convincing evidence that she had actually selected inmates for extermination in order to secure tattooed skins or that she possessed any articles made out of human skin. So they keep like going back and forth on whether this is actually human skin. How were they not able to test that? Is it really impossible to test that? Or was it just like where they were technologically? It's where they were. They could, there's no DNA or anything yet. Has that been tested since? I mean, I'd imagine there's somebody out there who's looked into that, right? So yeah, a little bit. So ultimately historians have, are now doubting whether the lampshades ever actually existed made out of human skin. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a man who, who had bought this, this lampshade that was touted as a Nazi relic and DNA testing was done. It was said that it could possibly be human um, skin. And then ultimately it was tested again and they said it's most likely cow skin. So they've never Mm -hmm. really found them. The ones, like they've the never found ones. right. They've never found one to say like, "Hey, this lampshade is human skin." But there is a photo. So we're gonna link all of our articles. One of the articles shows photos, and there's chunks of skin, like mounted on something. And I don't know if it's done for the prosecution, but you'll see like a strip of skin with a tattoo. So, I mean, I think the pictures obviously are showing something. So I think they're kind of just doubting the lampshades. Yeah. Not that skin was ever harvested. Yeah. So she ended up. Helps if my mic doesn't fall on my face. Um, Two years after her conviction, her sentence was actually reduced to four years because of that. Right. So she ended up being released and rearrested shortly thereafter in 1950. And she was tried again. And during this trial, she was known to collapse frequently during trial. And there were 250 witnesses that ended up testifying. 50 of them were for the defense. And four witnesses testified that they saw her select prisoners for tattoos or had been involved in manufacturing human skin lampshades. So was this, when she was rearrested, was that for the same thing again? I think because so. Because new evidence had come out. So is I don't this... know why she gets to be retried for this. Okay. It seems so it's suspicious. Like there's a different system when it comes to like these international or like war They crimes. don't have a system. 
No, that's they don't point. have double jeopardy. They don't that have is. a system. That's so, right. But somehow, even though these, these four witnesses testified that they either watched her select people or had actually been involved in making the lampshades, they dropped the charges. And I'm like, how do you? There's evidence. Yeah. You I have like witness a, testimony now. You have four people. Yeah. I feel like at this point, it's like a fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Because how fool do they let three this times? Go? Yeah. Three times. Well, I mean, yeah. one is Nazi court prosecuting. Okay. So twice. I guess fool me twice. Yeah. So on January 15th, 1951, the court ended up issuing a 111-page verdict. And in that verdict, she was convicted of charges of incitement to murder, incitement to attempted murder, and incitement to the crime of committing grievous bodily harm, and was given life in, a sentence of life imprisonment with the permanent forfeiture of any civil rights. And she tried appealing this multiple times, she tried protesting to the International Human Rights Commission. That was rejected. So they pretty much told her you were sitting in prison. And on September 1st, 1967, at the age of 60, she committed suicide in prison. Um, and it was essentially out of shame and desperation. So reports were saying that she essentially suffered severe delusions that survivors of the concentration camps were going to come and attack her in her cell. So she just went crazy sitting in, in prison. Um, kind of sounds like a guilty conscience. I know. I was like, this is kind of hard to feel bad for you with it. Exactly. Um, and so she ended up being buried in an unmarked untended grave at the prison. And that is the end of her story. I think we have two more. Yeah, we have two more. We're switching it up, though, on these last two. Oh, does it get worse? Um, It's just a different way. They're not guards. Oh, okay. So the last two, so, yeah, we have some guards and, like, people actually involved in, in like, I guess, the, the you know, more of the, like, guard-type crimes. Mm -hmm. So the first one that we're going to cover in this new little section is her name is Karen Magnuson. And she was born February 9th, 1908 in Bremen, I think. And she was known for being a brilliant biologist and physicist. So she's educated. She's smart. She's in the STEM field. Uh, she ended up joining the National Socialist German Students League in, during her undergraduate. And eventually, at the age of 23, joined the Nazi party. So really, it was the National Socialist German Workers' Party, and then eventually became a leader in the League of German Girls. And in 1935, she went to work in the Nazi Racial Policy Office, and she actually authored a paper, which you can kind of still find because it is like a scientific paper. And it was interesting because I kind of researching the paper, there's medical students recently that have written about her paper to essentially like analyze it so that and study it so that we don't repeat history 
So it's kind of like you see more modern articles or it's like referenced Mm -hmm. in other articles. So essentially her, this paper that she authored is called the implements of race and population policies. And it pretty much found that Jews were the enemy of the German people and that this problem could not be solved by simply moving Jewish people into another country. It's part of the whole reason of why we started or they started this extermination of of Jewish people. Um, definitely not me. You're not agreeing with that. So she was known for her work as a researcher of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute of Anthropology, Human Heredity, and Eugenics during German's Third Reich. Now, at Kaiser, when she was working there, Kaiser Wilhelm, she was known for her anti-Semitic beliefs, and she was very outspoken about it. And some professors and researchers wouldn't work with her because of it. So some of them were not agreeing. And she essentially became fascinated by heterochromia, which I could totally be saying that wrong. It's essentially where you have different color eyes. So... What that's what she chose to study. And what she did is she would, she was involved somewhat in the experimentation on the medical experimentation on individuals in the concentration camps. So the one that she was like most well known for is there were six twins and a family with eight members were selected from a gypsy camp and they had different color eyes. And so what she would do is she would put adrenaline drops. They were administered into their eyes in an attempt to try to change the color. So they were administered, the drops were administered while the person was alive. And then she wanted the eyes to study. So she had them Mm. killed. And then The um, specimens were, she was working with Dr. Mengel in Auschwitz. And so she would receive specimens from him to research. And so this was kind of the most well-known is that she was experimenting on these people with different color eyes. And I read a paper that essentially looked at her experiment and the families and the, the twins that had the different color eyes Also, I think one of them, um, or I think all of them were deaf as well. Mm -hmm. And so now the modern doctors recognize that each of them had a, um, a condition that caused it Mm -hmm. along with their other symptoms. And so they're like, these experiments weren't going to go anywhere. Like you can't change their eyes. This is the most likely source. It's not like they're perfectly healthy, but just born with two different color eyes. Mm-hmm. They had a reason for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people have still studied it. And so like you'll see kind of citations to her work. So essentially she became a crazy like Nazi believer out of choice and belief. And different people who have looked and, and researched her life, had said it really wasn't for any sort of social advancement or, you know, an offer of, um, like, it, it. she wasn't trying to improve her status. Like, she truly was a believer. And 
at the end, though, at the end of the war, she claimed that she was just, she was dragged along in things, and she was quoted as saying, I was a Nazi fellow traveler, that's all. So in September of 1946, the Berlin office of the United States Council for War Crimes recommended that she should be arrested for her her involvement in these experiments. And ultimately, the British and the Americans decided that they were going to resume German science, medical science. Um, and really, they decided that publicizing the German medical atrocities that happened would essentially make everybody question science. So they're like, if we, you know, widespread, if we send this information and we publicize this, everybody is going to start doubting medical science and medical advancement. I and mean, so, to a certain extent, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I think you should question, question things. So, right. So what they did was they decided not to investigate hospitals and universities because they didn't want to raise suspicions, particularly on doctors, um, because they thought it could ultimately end in having to remove several highly qualified medical professionals, mostly men, uh, pretty much all men, um, and they were really needed at the time. So they just didn't want to touch it. So It's not exactly something that I think should be swept under the rug because arguably no. when that comes out inevitably from underneath the rug now we're really gonna have a distrust in medicine yeah so I mean they did have and you'll see in the next one there was a specific trial like with Dr. Mengal and some of the like really horrific individuals who were doing the medical experimentation in the camps they were prosecuted um and you know deemed war crimes and it think some of them ended up escaping but there were trials so it was just they didn't want to do a full-blown investigation and end up essentially having no doctors but it's still like you're really not going to prosecute this yeah okay so after world war ii she was not prosecuted she was allowed to live in Bremen and continue her research. She continued publishing in her field. She underwent a denazification process and was classified a follower, so she wasn't a risk. And after all of this, she still wanted to study different colored eyes in the gypsy population. Mm-mm. And other doctors were like, oh, not a good idea. Yeah, no. No, let's not. So she was still allowed to teach, though, for another 20 years. And she died peacefully in her bed at the age of 89 in 1997. Wow, the sick irony of these people dying in peace. Mm-hmm. So some places did refuse to publish her due to her, once they figured out who she was and her involvement in the experiments, they refused um, but she did continue throughout her life. She continued to justify the, na- the Nazi racist ideology in that the race laws didn't go far enough. So she's still, I don't know how they thought like, oh, she underwent denazification and it's fine. 
No, she still truly, like, she truly believed it. Yeah. And she also didn't think that, or she denied that any children were actually killed for her experiments. Of course. Of course, they're all denying that. Yeah. All right. Our last one. It's a little rough. And I may butcher this last name. Okay. So our last one is Dr. Herta Overheiser. And right. I don't know German. I think so. Sounded German. I think so. Um, all right. So she was born on May 15th, 1911. And she had her by 1937, she had her medical degree and she specialized in dermatology. She joined the Nazi party as an intern and then ultimately as the doctor to the League of German Girls. She was um, appointed as the assistant to Karl Gerbhardt, who was the chief surgeon of the SS and Heinrich Heimler's personal doctor. So she was working with with officials that were pretty high up um, in the SS and the experimentation. So she was, by all reports, happy. She was a woman of independent means is what they, they said that she was. She was talented. She ultimately ended up at the Ravensbrück concentration camp. And her crimes that she was involved with. So the Germans were very concerned about how, um, how to treat their soldiers. So there's a lot of experimentation was done to figure out how do we treat if um, our soldiers have an infection or if we need to perform, you know, some sort of bone transplant or so they're messing around with like anesthetic and different, different surgeries. Um, so what she would do is she was listed as being one of the individuals who would kill healthy children by giving them injections of oil mixed with the barbiturate. And um, she would start removing their limbs and vital organs. But by all reports, it takes about um, the time from injection to death was five minutes. And they believe that the person was fully conscious during her whole I don't want to call it surgery, but essentially she wasn't waiting until. Until like, they were dead. No. To do that. No. Um, she also, one of the other things that they were doing is they were deliberately inflicting wounds on, on, on people. Some, there were 74 women that were given sofomonide. Um, injections and they were also given they were given this drug and they were also um, they underwent bone transplant bone transplants without their consent so pretty much the women would either quote-unquote consent or they would be like taken out and ultimately forced into it so either way they were forced and So there were those experiments that were going on. Um, They also ran experiments to essentially simulate German soldiers fighting in the war, and they were trying to identify how to cure these infections. So what they would do is they would rub foreign objects like wood, 
nails, glass, dirt, sawdust into the open wounds of prisoners to essentially cause an infection and try to figure out if they could save them. So she was involved in that. Um, A lot of the time, one place noted that she was responsible for the post-operative care after somebody had undergone these horrific surgeries. But um, some of the survivors had said that she would refuse to give them water, or if she did give them water, it would be mixed with vinegar. Um, She wouldn't dress the wounds. And, like, one person had said that she just, like, sat and smiled and said, like, yeah, of course I'll do it. And then walked out and never did. So they were just leaving open wound. Um, she also refused to give them any sort of pain medicine, uh, despite the prisoners were screaming in pain. So five women died, um, died of the experiments. But many of these women had lifelong pain and disabilities, um, the Germans were also doing forced sterilizations of women. And so she was also somewhat involved in that. So she was the only female defendant in the Nuremberg medical trial. And she was ultimately sentenced to 20 years in prison for everything that she did. And like others, she was released early for good behavior no, it shouldn't yes. be like that. I, it doesn't matter how much good behavior no. you have when you are in prison and unable to do a lot of the horrible things that you did before. Um, yeah, so she uh, was released in 1952. So she barely served any of her time. And she became a family doctor and kept practicing in Germany. Oh, my gosh. But she lost her position in 1956 because a Ravensbrück concentration camp survivor recognized her as the doctor. Can you imagine how horrifying that would be as you go into your family doctor and it's somebody from the concentration camp? Uh, Yeah, that's horrifying. So ultimately, after pressure from the British Medical Association... Um, they pretty much threw a fit saying like everything she did, like she should not be allowed to have her doctor because everything she did is completely counter to all of our, you know, like the Hippocratic oath and everything that we do. So, um, her medical license was revoked in 1958 and she said of her service, uh, being a woman didn't stop me being a good national socialist. I think female national socialists were every bit as valuable as men in keeping what we believed in alive. So again, didn't see a problem. No. And this is, again, I feel like we need to read, like, this is not us saying we need more women war criminals. No. This is just, yeah. Yeah. No, this is no. So she died in a nursing home um, on January 24th, 1978. So those are the end of our little history. But one thing or a couple things I thought were really interesting is there was a couple different historians who have gone through and, and studied female war criminals. And one historian, Catherine 
Hopschkick, uh, said that the participation of women in the crimes of Nazis have been blended out of the collective conscious of the Germans for a long time, which I think perfectly that quote summarizes it so perfectly mm-hmm. because you don't think of these female as being anything other than, you know, the wife or the mom. Mm-hmm. And so some of the different positions that she had quoted were that they were assistants to doctors who sterilized and murdered people with disabilities. They were the head guards of the concentration camps, like what we covered. Um, They were handmaidens to the SS as they staffed these baby farms where they were essentially trying to create these quote unquote supermen, um, you know, with the perfect, perfect race. And then they also stood by their men as the men were going out to war. Mm -hmm. And so essentially Kompich, if I'm saying that right, pretty much said that the history of what she says is the history of national socialism has long been reduced to one that blamed men for everything. Mm -hmm. And the fact that women were involved at all levels of the Third Reich's most infamous and brutal crimes there were always choices, even within the Third Reich, and women often made their own choices as much as men. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there's just, they were involved in so many different parts. And one estimate is that roughly 50,000 women participated in the Nazi occupation of Eastern Europe. Um, and only in the first decade after. Um, after World War II, only 26 women were ultimately sentenced to death. Wow. And some women, uh, like Erna Wallisch, was listed as the seventh most important at-large Nazi war criminal. She was found living in an apartment in Vienna in 2007. And they never even really prosecuted her because she had been missing. She was this little grandma living in an apartment. And in as recent as 2015, 260,000 counts of accessory to murder were brought against a 91-year-old German woman who was oh, a telegraph operator at Auschwitz. So it, it's kind of this weird perception, I guess, of women. And there's also different books discussing how when women commit war criminals the or war crimes, the typical defense is I was just following orders. Mm-hmm. I was just following the man. Mm-hmm. I was just, you know, I was just doing my job. I didn't have anything to do with this. Mm-hmm. So they have that where they're just, there's no responsibility. They're blaming it on yeah. somebody else. And the fact that that has been successful is indicative right. of a deeper rooted issue. It is. And then you have the perception of these women as a mother, as, you know, a wife. It's not as strong of a personality that it's creating these kind of lenient sentences. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a couple other cases of more recent work criminals that I want to cover that are really interesting where they have these horrific do these horrific crimes and essentially just like come back to their regular life and keep living it as a mom Mm -hmm. until somebody finally realizes what the heck (laughs) this person is just here. 
But it's kind of like this. Like you have only 26 women getting sentenced to death where when you have you this have way more huge, right, you have this huge number of men being prosecuted and potentially put to death for smaller things. Not, you know what I mean? Like not to minimize it, but they didn't have as much power. These men that are being, you know, sentenced to death and killed don't have as much power as some of these women who Mm -hmm. serve a couple years in prison and then get out for good behavior. Mm -hmm. And it makes you think like they, they were obviously overlooked in that process. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they're I mean, deemed the a follower. That they, exactly. And the fact that they were doing these horrific things and they're still being overlooked and instead they're going after people who did still horrific but less horrific things shows right. that it, I mean, they're being overlooked for some reason. And really, I think that's the only explanation. And it's interesting because the men who are being you know, prosecuted for this are really the followers like mm-hmm. their job is technically just to follow. Mm-hmm. They don't have the authority to to act outside the bounds like some of these women did. Mm-hmm. But they're being treated the same or worse than these women. And it's yeah. just a really interesting yeah. topic, I guess. But it's interesting because it's kind of like there's more not sympathy because I don't think that anyone in that situation deserves sympathy except for those victims. Um, but they but got it. They did, and it's it, it's almost as though they kind of had this leg up, which I think is also important to address as we talk about Women's History Month and how you know women are, need equal access to opportunities. But also, I think it's important that women are equally held accountable for things when they do right. step out of bounds like this, um, because I think that's important too. We don't want to fight fire with fire and then just end up with a bigger fire, right? We've got to recognize that in the same way that we want women to have equal opportunities, we also need women to take accountability for their actions and not give in to that. Like I'm going to do these horrific things and be in my woman power, but then you have to have sympathy for me when it comes to sentencing. That's not how it works. So essentially one odd thing that came out of this was a lot of the men were prosecuted by these international courts but a lot of the prosecutions, like the ones that I, the one I mentioned that was happening in 2015, a lot of these prosecutions are having to be done by, by courts within a particular country. So they're not deeming it an international war crime, even though it is. And there's men that were prosecuted for the same thing. It's what they're calling domestic courts are the ones that are having to, to deal with this because these people have never faced any sort of accountability for their crimes and then the other interesting um i guess like takeaway is a lot of these these different scholars who have looked at it and i mean we've kind of already discussed it is essentially that the lower ranking women were essentially spared from being prosecuted because of the traditional view that women are, you know, their mothers and they're supposed to just be like birthing our next generation in Germany. It was never a position of power. And those viewpoints are really why a lot of these women walked away with no accountability at all. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy. That is insane. Yeah. 
I had no idea. This was a good episode. <laughs> I had no idea that's where this was going to go, but that's really <laughs> fascinating. I, I told you I went rogue. Yeah. I went real rogue, guys. So what's the holding? Don't be a Nazi. That's a good one. Generally, that's a good one. You know, that's yeah. I mean, um, they're just. There were some interesting thoughts that I had there. I mean, one that is still very important, I think, to talk about is you know you had the case of and her name has escaped me, but the one who was publishing scientific articles. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a really good example of how even these articles being published in journals, even though we're we're not living in that time anymore, there are still a lot of people that are in STEM or are in just academia generally, and they're publishing these articles. And you have to recognize that their beliefs and their political views and their experiences are going to shape <laughs> the way that they that they um. Right, and it's going to impact their decisions about what's no, it, right. And so it's important to look into, moral of the story, look into who is writing these articles because you can do that and you can learn about them because you may not want to be citing a Nazi doctor right. in, your next, uh, in your next research paper. No, you, you definitely don't know. And I mean, you hope that if you are having, you know, a true academic article where it has to be peer reviewed, that that is going to help filter it out. Kind of like how the scholars did say after, you know, certain publications refused to publish her stuff because of the views. But you never truly know. I think no. now most people, most are not going to come right out and say, you know, oh, I I have, you know, racial tendencies or, you no. know, I'm racist or I'm I'm a Nazi. Like, that's just yeah. not something that's going to be publicized like it was back then. Yeah. And it's so it's important to do your research. I think more so, I guess, where it comes out, because you're right in the peer review process and journal articles, It most of the time, any really blatant bias, there's still going to be bias, but right. any blatant bias or things like this are maybe going to go, um, they're going to get filtered out. But I'm thinking more like in YouTube videos and social media and oh, TikTok where yeah. you see it's doctor not- in front of somebody's name you need to look into that i mean i think too during covid there were a lot of people who'd be like oh a doctor said this but you can be a doctor in english you can be a doctor in in literature it doesn't mean that you have anything to say about science some people call themselves doctors just by having a jd oh yeah they're like oh i'm a lawyer and you need to refer to me by doctor like oh that's that's weird Mm -mm, no. no that's weird it's really weird yeah, so I mean, do your research into it. That's not to say that you're going to be doing research for school and you're going to have a Nazi doctor that wrote that paper you're looking at. But it brings up this fact that, you know, just because these people are doctors in whatever type they are or they're in academia doesn't mean that they're free from this type of indoctrinated thinking. You can have these right. very intelligent people, the very educated people who fall victim to this type of indoctrination. And I think that's something that we still see a lot today not to the same extent but we still see it and it's important that people recognize that and that they're not just taking things at their face value I right I agree and I think thinking for yourself questioning things yes and really looking into it before you you know you you can't believe everything you read on the internet or you see Mm mm-hmm I mean, I think this is just, it's a good example of it. Yeah. 
I mean, I think another holding is that women need or should be under the justice system just as accountable as men. Exactly. Yes. I absolutely think that's true. And I think it has um, somewhat standardized by now. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure we're going to cover, and and I'm sure, you know, our listeners or you have heard of other cases where it's always a big deal if you have um, a woman sentenced to death. Like Mm -hmm. on Tammy Jo Huntsman, Mm -hmm. the DA made a big deal out of that because it was the first woman facing the death penalty in something like 20 years, I think it was. Um, so, I mean, it's not, it's not, com- our justice system isn't completely there yet mm-hmm. because I mean, it, it kind of is a weird concept of you were putting to death, you know, like Tammy Jo Huntsman, you're putting to death a mother, She's a really shitty mother, but mm-hmm. you're still a mother. Um, and I think our, our perception as a society is that a mother is caring and always supposed to be there and somehow we still think that a mother is more needed than the father, which I mean, we've discussed this with Tammy Jo Huntsman, but I think it kind of still ties into here and other cases. This isn't going to be the last time. Yeah. I mean, that's not to say also that, I mean, it it is still important to recognize that like, because I think the similar, like a similar concept refers, we see that often come up in conversations about like minority groups. Like I think to a certain extent, the justice system did work against these populations and still do in a lot of ways work against these populations. So it it is this fine line to walk between, Mm -hmm. we want to make sure that everybody is held accountable for what they do. But also I think that we can't move forward without recognizing that historically these populations have been negatively impacted by the system. And so we need to kind of, make sure that we're checking it on both sides, you know? Oh yeah. We definitely need to recognize. But then you have these cases that are just outright egregious and there's no explanation for why a woman should have had sympathy in that case. Why Nazi people got out on good behavior in a couple years when their sentence still is something like 20 years and they serve maybe six. Yeah. Don't understand that. No. Do you have any other holdings? Let me see. Let me check. You always have the best holdings. <laughs> Thank you. Mine are like saying... the obvious ones. Like, don't be a Nazi. Oh, no, that, but that's arguably more important. <laughs> that is more important. Um, yeah, that, that was really the biggest takeaway that I had. And I mean, again, I see this, we see this trend across all of the episodes we've talked about that. I mean, crime is crime. You, you, there is right. no one image. I think before this episode, when I envisioned Nazi Germany, I was not ever thinking about women's role in that in the way that we talked about it today. And so just to keep that, not to give everyone this doom and gloom outlook on the world, because I mean, obviously we don't have that outlook on the world and we're talking about these things, but right. just to kind of keep, just keep that open, open mind a little bit. Don't be blind to the fact that that like not all criminals look like criminals and act like criminals right. all the time and I mean you guys will see when I post tomorrow um we'll post I'm going to try to find a picture of every woman that we covered and I mean it's just it's completely unsuspecting you would you would never look at them and think that they mm-hmm. did these horrific crimes yeah but I mean I think also some of it has been erased through history mm-hmm. she have no idea how many world war ii documentaries i've watched with my dad yeah like, 
watch the History Channel a lot. And we've watched quite a bit of World War II and a lot on, on you know, Nazi Germany and the, the concentration camps. And I really don't remember them ever focusing on women. Yeah, I've never. No. It's just kind of been erased. You you hear of the women only in, in the home life. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy. Yeah, it is. That was, right. good, that was a good episode. That was good. All right. Well, thanks we for have any, tuning in. Anything else? No. Keep I think we already said all of our, our, our procedural and, matters. Yeah. Well, keep tuning in. Um, if you haven't listened to our prior episodes, please go back and start listening. We've covered some really great cases that were more local to us uh, since we went rogue the last two episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's okay. It's Women's History Month. Yeah. So we wanted to bring you the full experience. Yeah. But you can follow us on social media. You can follow us on Instagram at A Place in the Courtroom. You can follow us on Facebook at A Place in the Courtroom podcast. You can email us at A Place in the Courtroom at gmail.com. Will we ever get that correct? I always forget. I think that's it. You, I always yeah. forget if there's podcast at the end. I do too. I do too. And let's confirm. I it don't right think now. it is. This is actually like a. I don't think it moment. is. We're waiting for you guys to forget. It's a place in the courtroom at gmail.com. Okay. Perfect. But our website is www.aplaceinthecourtroompodcast.com. And if you remember only one thing, remember that because it'll link you to just about everything. It will. That is a good place to start. If you don't know who we are, start there. It gives you our information. It will give you our links to our social media. You can listen to all of our episodes. You can find an app to listen to us on there. Other than that, please like um, our Facebook, follow us on Instagram. You can send us an email you guys have case suggestions if you have anything to share if you just want to say hi that's fine um other than that if you rate or review us it definitely helps us we hopefully will start moving up the charts i think we made it on what a chart in korea we did we did <laughs> like but i think second that might have been a scam yeah <laughs> <laughs> we got an email saying that we were on the charts in korea but i think that was a scam probably um but you did you did find us on a chart i did find us on a chart it we was were not just the chart really low we were on no but we were on a chart you know we were what? guys and that's what matters it is it doesn't matter what place but we are on a chart mm-hmm. um okay other than that listen to our episode on thursday you guys will be getting a new episode this week i think with a couple guests um yeah. and so that one should be fun and yeah next week is our last week of women's history month where we're going to be bringing you a case as well as a recap so that one should be good and then i'm so excited for my first case of april i'm I'm i know i'm so excited we won't i will not release any information about it but we might drop some easter eggs along the way we might we might all right well all right thank you guys thanks for tuning in that was a rough one. They always it are. was. It was. Go cuddle a puppy. Um, go, go cut. I heard cut a little puppy. 
Don't no, do cuddle. Cuddle a puppy. Snuggle. Cuddle. Snuggle a puppy. Snuggle. Yeah. Do nice things to a puppy. Do not injure a puppy. Um, snuggle with your cat. That's fine too. Or your significant other. Um, eat some chocolate. I don't know. Go watch Real Housewives, Vanderpump. You need to watch Vanderpump so we can chat. I know. I know. But yeah. All right. We will talk to you guys next time. See you in the next episode. Bye.